Testing, testing. Okay, thank you. Bum, 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 bum. Okay, well, uh, I think we should get started, I guess. Okay, y'all, let's pray if you, if we would. Lord, I thank you for today and the opportunity to be at uh, CBC LaGrange. Thank you for Pastor Jeremy and all the helpers. This church always has so many helpers, Lord, and I thank you for them to make an event like this happen. Uh, encourage us today as we think about a crucial topic in the uh, life of the church and in our nation right now. Encourage us today, give us wisdom and discernment, and I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, the title of my talk is The Bible and Homosexuality. And now, if you just missed the talk I just did on biblical creationism, you really missed all the uh, nice uh, images on my slides. Uh, Unfortunate for you, uh, my slide presentation on this topic is, uh, as Dr. Little said last night on his, it's all text, okay? And so you're just going to have to uh, deal with that and uh, think a little bit instead of looking at the pictures and thinking of something else, which is what we do when we look at pictures, right? Okay, so the State of the Union. And uh, here's where we are. The State of the Union, literally the State of our Union. If someone calls calls homosexuality a sin or immoral... uh, Gays will call that person a homophobe, intolerant, or bigot. And in Christianity in general, in the public square, you are seen as a bigot and intolerant. And you're called that, I've been called that, by people who are out of the other corner of their mouth preaching intolerance. I'm sorry, preaching tolerance. You know, they want... uh, They want you to be tolerant of them, but they're not going to be uh, tolerant of you. So you might as well forget it. Um, Last records I saw are that actually 1% or 2% of the population actually is is homosexual. Uh, But how how has this been pawned off on American culture these days so that the Supreme Court passes a law this past summer in June to legalize uh, same-sex marriage, it's been pawned off because the TV shows, uh, the late-night sitcoms that some of you might watch, uh, and it's really a sad state of affairs how they've gotten into the mind of the culture, the church especially. And as I put here, same-sex marriage, it was okay this summer by the Supreme Court. But that's not enough, actually, for the anti-Christian legal union. You recognize the uh, abbreviation for what I have here, right? ACLU. That's the anti-Christian legal union. Uh, they tell you they're uh, the American civil liberties, but it's anti-Christian uh, at its core, and every lawsuit they bring is against Christians. Uh, and, um, and the homosexual agenda. They're now persecuting, suing, defaming, and bullying anyone who's not celebrating from their homosexual lifestyle of town that I live closest to because I don't live in a town. I live in D.C., deep country. The town I live closest to, Pageland, South Carolina, there are two uh, gay uh, couple, two men who live together. Uh, I heard they were ran out of a uh, homosexual community in Charlotte, and they came down there, there to live. But for the last three or four years, they have been bullying uh, the town. And they bullied one lady to just push her off of the Chamber of Commerce so that one of them could get on there. And uh, the, they do a lot of bullying, unfortunately. The effects of homosexual behavior on, on the homosexual are now being blamed on non-homosexuals. I actually uh, read this recently in a book on the Bible and homosexuality written by a, a pro-gay uh, writer. And um, he is saying, and they are saying, that the effects of homosexual behavior on the homosexual... Uh, his or her psychological problems and the fact that they need psychotherapy or some sort of counseling is now blamed on the non-homosexual, those of you who view it as a sin and will dare speak against it or look at them, uh, you know, with some sort of funny look or whatever. And then um, 
secondly, I want to get to the Bible. That's going to be my main point today is what does the Bible say? So I'm, I'm, I'm going to really just fly through these first two points. The issue of uh, origins, the issue of origins. Uh, that is that we're to distinguish between homosexual orientation from behavior. This is where the argument has gone nowadays. Can you believe that? I, I, uh, I, I get these uh, catalogs from uh, book publishers. I got one recently, and they're, they're trying to sell you, you know, the theology books. And the title of one of the books is um, How to Be Gay, Christian, and Celibate. Did you hear that? How to Be Gay, Christian, and Celibate. Uh, to me, these are really these types of talks and notions are really um, they're really things that are thrown in there to confuse people that are teetering on the fence even more. And these things work. This kind of talk about homosexual orientation. What do you do with those who just have? Uh, maybe they're not uh, participating in homosexual acts or behavior, but they have um, an orientation. And if I'm born with that orientation, you know, because the whole born with the gay gene thing has already been debunked and gone by the wayside largely, not totally. Uh, but now it's the orientation talk. So what do we do with those who are born with the orientation? And so many Christians today, I'm talking to Christians, young Christians, especially even a few older ones in the churches that seem confused about Christianity and the Bible's position on homosexuality. And it's because of these types of uh, uh, things. The difference between having a tendency and behaving according to that. And whether a genetic connection... Actually, here's a good question. And, and these questions are actually brought up in um, uh, John and Paul Feinberg's uh, latest edition of Ethics for a Brave New World. Uh, these guys are brothers. One of them is deceased now, but... Uh, they actually added a, an additional chapter. They now have two chapters on homosexuality in this Christian ethics books, which, uh, book, which I highly recommend. But they, they go through these scenarios about the genetic connection. Even if we granted that, which there's a lot of confusion uh, with uh, psychologists, psychotherapists, and the medical community, if that is even true. But even if you granted that, would that remove a responsibility for your action? And the Feinberg's answer is no, the short answer. That's my short answer as well. And, and, and this is the type of thing, uh, some of you, I know you're familiar with Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron, the, the evangelist guys. Now, regardless of what you think about him or his evangelistic methodology or whatever, he, um, what is this movie, this film? Uh, Audacity. You have it in your the black bag. You have a free copy of the new film Audacity. It's only 48 minutes long. And he just goes out and interviews people cold turkey. But Ray Comfort has really caught on to this, this response to homosexuals and those who bring up this, uh, uh, this uh, excuse. Um, he says, uh, okay, you're, you believe same-sex marriage? Okay, yeah, yeah, I believe in gays. I love gays and same-sex marriage. That's cool, whatever they want to do. You know, he's doing the microphone back and forth, interview and ask questions and get these responses. Just the most, they're impromptu, but what makes it most interesting is it's impromptu. These wacko ideas people have, but it's impromptu. And so he says, uh, you think they were born that that way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, born that way. And he asks a couple, two or three or four people, uh, he comes back with, uh, what about adulterers? You think they were born that way? And one guy's like, you mean they cheat on their boyfriend, girl? Yeah, adultery. No, no, no. They, they're, not born, they're not born as cheaters. No, they're not born that way. In other words, he immediately saw there's a responsibility uh, factor here. Okay, and then he asks, uh, he actually tells a couple people, well, I, uh, do you think people are born fornicators? He said, because I was born that way. I was born with the desire to lust after women. When I was younger, I see girls, I want desire to be with them. You, you think I was born that way? And he just stops them in their tracks. Oh, one guy actually says, you've got a good argument. I, I see what you're saying. And uh, so this is a possible response to... Uh, this issue about uh, removing responsibility for one's actions. Because the fact is, biblically, we are all born with sinful bents, regardless of what that bent is. Okay, 
a proclivity. I don't care what fancy term you put on it. It's just the fact of the matter. And in fact, the Bible, the epistles in the New Testament specifically tell us these things to uh, put to death and to get rid of in our lives. These, uh, what the Bible calls sins. It's just the fact of the matter. And then the Feinbergs go through something, a really neat discussion about, uh, I've got to get used to that is one click behind this one. This one's one click behind something. Uh, Distinguished between a condition being heritable or inherited. Okay? And so um, what their, uh, what their explanation here or illustration here is uh, someone like me. He doesn't name my name, but he actually writes a couple paragraphs about me. Someone who has the heritable traits to play basketball. That's his illustration. Tall, thin, agile, coordinated. Some of you might not think I'm coordinated if you see me walk around here, but get me on a basketball court with the basketball in my hand. It's a different story, I promise you. These are traits that are heritable. I'm born with the long, lanky agility and so forth, but that does not mean, that's called a heritable trait, but that does not mean I'm going to be an NBA player. Okay, and so it's, it's different between inheriting something. And same with the, 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 the heritability of homosexuality. Uh, because you're born with certain uh, bents or, or, or a, a softness in your life or whatever as a male, for instance, that does not mean you're going to be homosexual. It certainly doesn't mean you have to behave that way. So that's, that's uh, the Feinberg's argument in a very simplified uh, version. And um, as they go on to say, there is not enough evidence to show a direct link from genetics to homosexuality. There's no clear indirect link uh, either. Even if there were a link to show a predisposition, that does not force one to act on that pre, uh, predisposition. And I actually had a clip from the Audacity movie. I was going to, we're not going to do that here. Uh, people engage in homosexual behavior. Uh, because they have rejected the truth of God and their behavior is immoral. They are guilty before God, but He can, de- de- uh, can liberate the sinner. Okay, I need to get to the Bible uh, because this is the point. What does the Bible have to say about homosexuality? And this thing did the same thing to me that it did to Dr. Little last night. Five major passages in the Bible that mention homosexuality specifically. And we're going we're gonna to look at those uh, each in turn. Um, we're going to look at the last two together. That's why five, if you're thinking, man, you can't count, Mel. First of all, let me say this before we look at the pack, uh, passages. Um, homosexuality is against God's design and purpose. Genesis 1, he created them male and female. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to give him a helper. It wasn't another male. That wouldn't work biologically anyway. It was a female. Okay? Uh, God's wrath on Sodom. Genesis 19. Uh, It's an abomination before the Lord. Leviticus 18 in this section on moral law. I, I get this question even as early as four or five days ago. How, how, man, can you say, you know, homosexuality is wrong when there's these other laws about uh, stoning people to death and you don't do that. You can't eat shrimp or catfish. And um, I would really hate to live in that culture not being able to eat shrimp or catfish because I love both. And, um, and the fact there is... Um, some laws were civil laws, some were ceremonial, you know, filleting the animals out and throwing them up on the grill, the altar to cook, to offer sacrifice. We don't do that anymore. But some laws, laws were moral. They, they had issues of, uh, they dealt with issues of morality, and these are repeated in the New Testament as one hermeneutical, objective hermeneutical method by which to uh, judge, is this still for us today or not? It, when it's repeated in the epistles, you can safely say, yes, it's for the church today. And uh, we're, uh, we're going to look at that passage in uh, detail. And Jesus affirmed God's design and purpose by quoting from Genesis in Matthew 19.4. They're uh, male and female. Okay? All right. So uh, let me skip through a couple here. 
that I was not going to cover. So, Genesis... Uh, this thing did this again. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to... Okay. Here we go. God created... Genesis 1 and 2 speaks to homosexuality, I think, in this way. God created mankind as male and female. Okay, let us make man in our image. Male and female created he them. Okay? Uh, Jesus stated in Genesis 2, 18 and 20, the only thing that he did create that he said was not good was that the male be alone. Okay? And uh, so he created um, the, uh, the female a helper suitable for the male. Now, this actually, one comment can have all kinds of implications, right? Uh, the male and female, we could look at uh, the roles and the psychological makeup and the differences between both of us, and that's why God put us together, because opposites attract, right? Uh, hey, listen, you can argue all day long about homosexuality, but let me just give you one example I've seen in my own life about the male-female complementarity. Uh, um, when my baby girls get hurt, fall down, bust their knee, who do they call for? Mommy! And I've literally said to them, not if they were hurt too bad, but I say, what about daddy? <laughs> no, God didn't put that in children to look for the comfort and so forth from the male. God gave you females that ability and that gift. He instilled that in you. See, and, uh, and the, ma- uh, the female is the helper suitable for the male. That's Scripture. That's life. That makes sense. Okay, and, and the marriage then, uh, God pronounced these two one flesh. One flesh. We could bring up the biological notion again. And the marriage then is between one male and one female. This is the union that follows God design, God's design and therefore the union that God blesses. It's biologically designed to be the case, spiritually designed to be the case, socially designed to be the case. The female is the proper companion for the female, physically and beyond. Male and female have, the, have equality before God, yes, but there are differences. So the point here is only heterosexual marriage is presented in the creation order. It's the same order appealed to by Jesus and the apostles. Okay? All right, Genesis 19 then. Um, Genesis 19, what does that deal with? Anyone? Someone besides the pastor. Okay, or I was about to say the former pastor, but you've. <laughs> pastor Emeritus. Okay, Brother Dean. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Genesis 19. Now, what I have on the screen, I, I, I would say before you read it, but all of you are already in the middle of reading it. So, what I want to do is give you the pro-gay interpretation of the, uh, the issue with Sodom. And here's what the pro-gay interpretation looks like currently. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality at all, but it was a lack of Anyone? Hospitality. It was a lack of hospitality. Hey, they've got a great argument for this. They do. I mean, they have an argument for it, okay? Uh, At least. Um, It was, in fact, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was, in fact, a gross violation of the hospitality code of that culture. And boy... I mean, they bring in all their guns, you know, the, the, the ancient Near East studies and the uh, uh, linguistics and archaeology and all this. There, there was a hospitality code, you see. Well, yeah, there was a hospitality code, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's was the issue here. We've got to look at this text for clues. Okay? They say the use of the word yada usually refers to uh, heterosexual relations. Further, some, uh, that's that uh, phrase in the English Bible, uh, to know, usually, something like that. Uh, Further, uh, some interpreters see no sexual innuendos with the offering of Lot's daughters. When he uh, brought his daughters out and say, hey, y'all have fun with them tonight, don't touch my visitors. 
Okay? Uh, and others, while they do see the sexual connection, say this still doesn't count against the hospitality view. Secondly, other, other biblical texts that refer to Sodom mention only their inhospitable nature. Well, we could grant them that, actually. Sodom's mentioned as seven, eight, nine times later in the Bible, and it mentions their inhospitable nature. So what gives? Well, I have a couple of responses here. Yada uh, does not simply mean uh, Yada does not simply mean to get acquainted with. Moses does use the term at least five times in a sexual connotation. The pro-gay interpreters say he only used it once or twice, and that wasn't even clear. But five times, and they're uh, explicitly clear, where Moses uses this word. And secondly, if the men only wanted to check on the credentials of the visitors, which is what pro-gay interpretation says, for the safety of the city, then the offer of Lot's daughter would make no sense. If Lot and the hospitality code are the problem, then the judgment fell on the city, while Lot himself, who was the inhospitable dude, escaped right at the end of the story when God sends the judgment. And uh, also I have here, uh, well, that's what I have here. Uh, also, which I don't have on a slide, is um, the passages later on that mention Sodom do not mention their homosexuality, but it doesn't exclude it either. So that's an answer for that problem, which I didn't think was a big, uh, a big corroborative evidence for their position anyway. Um, and a lot of them actually look at Second Peter and Jude, Jude chapter six and seven about them going after strange flesh, but I think the language there is even stronger and clearer that uh, these guys, the men of the city of Sodom did not know that the men that came to Lot's house were angels. They wanted to have relations with men. They weren't, uh, pro-gay interpreters say Second Peter and Jude 6 and 7 are showing that uh, they, uh, the problem was they wanted to have this weird... Uh, prohibited sex with angels. That couldn't have been the case. They didn't even know they were angels. They thought they were males. Okay? And um, so you have that uh, going on. Um, and another, pro, uh, another pro-gay interpretation by gay advocates is the problem was homosexual gang rape, actually. However, the text uh, does lend itself to thinking that what the men wanted to do would be permissible if the guests had consented. Feinberg says, Is it possible that the real problem at Sodom was rape, not the fact that it involved same-sex participants? If so, surely there were rapes in Sodom and Gomorrah involving opposite-sex partners, but God never rained down fire and brimstone for those rapes. Okay? And also, I, I need to back up because I just remember this issue with this use of the word yada, that uh, pro-gay interpretations say this doesn't apply to, uh, to sex, sexual innu innuendos, but uh, this is actually the word used in context uh, when it was used that uh, offspring came out of it. For instance, Adam yada, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Does the word have a sexual innuendo there? That was a question. Yes, it does. Yeah, okay. And, um, well, I mentioned the situation of Second Peter and Jude, uh, Jude 6 and 7. Um, there are other arguments, but I'm, I'm going to move on. And uh, Okay, Leviticus 18 then. Uh, this is an interesting uh, passage of Scripture, the, uh, the prohibition against homosexuality is first seen as an abomination and secondly is nestled in between two uh, additional abominations, the first being child sacrifice and the next is bestiality. Is that the case? Yes. Listen, um, on, on uh, what's his name? Uh, Ray Comfort's video, uh, his film Audacity, uh, the guy playing the part of the gay, which actually he might be gay, I'm not sure, I saw a a trailer that was almost as long as the film from that, and they did use a lot of people in the film that just weren't Christians. They just hired people to, to make the film. 
which is fair. Um, but the one playing the part of uh, one of the gay men uh, says that, um, how can you say homosexuality is so bad when that word abomination is also used for eating shellfish? And my immediate thought was, yeah, but you weren't, the punishment wasn't you're stoned to death for eating shrimp. Right? You see, there were different degrees of consequences under the Old Testament law for certain sins. So I've heard Christians over the years, sin is a sin. All sins are the same. Well, is that true or not? If they are, it's really odd that there were different consequences for different sins. I mean, you can do with that what you like, but I like to use it. Uh, Luke 18, uh, 22, I'm sorry, 21, you shall not offer, I'm sorry, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with the male as one lies with the female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall, um, you shall not have any intercourse with any animal to be uh, uh, defiled with it. So, this prohibition is nestled in between... <laughs> Child sacrifice and bestiality. That's a pretty harsh place for God to put this prohibition, I think, if He just, you know, poo-poos it away and it's not that bad. Um, but one pro gave you, what, what do they say about it? Is that ancient cultures, Israel's neighbors, had varying uh, views and that homosexuality was known and even tolerated. Um, and another issue was homosexuality was prohibited not because it was morally wrong, but because it was practiced in connection with pagan idolatry. However, the context is that of uh, child sacrifice, incest, and bestiality being condemned by God, and they were not condemned simply because they had association with uh, Egyptian uh, paganism. And another pro-gay interpretation, the Old Testament laws do not apply to us today. I, I already kind of mentioned that. Um, I think it was Calvin who uh, first gave to us a clear look at a, 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 a tripartite, a threefold division of the Old Testament law. As I said, civil law, because they lived under a theocracy at the time, and uh, ceremonial laws, filleting out the animals for sacrifices and so forth, and moral laws. Um, Moral laws are still binding uh, when they're repeated in the New Testament, I think is an easy way to, uh, to look at that. And uh, the New Testament repeats the command I said. I'd like to read out of uh, Mark Rooker's commentary on Leviticus as he wraps up, gives a note. Uh, what was this note? Okay. He says this, Homosexuality is not to be viewed as a disease or a viable sex lifestyle, sexual lifestyle as it has been in some Western cultures. And he quotes a rabbi, Jacobovitz, who has contrasted the recent, toler Listen, the recent tolerance of homosexuality contrasted with consistent Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament teaching. And the man says this, Whereas the more liberal attitude found in some modern Christian circles is possibly due to the exaggerated importance Christians have traditionally accorded to the term love, Jewish laws, uh, Jewish law holds that no hedonistic ethic, even if called love, can justify the morality of homosexuality any more than it can legitimize adultery, incest, or polygamy, however genuinely such acts may be performed out of love and by mutual consent. Excellent point. It brings, it brings up this passage right here that these other things are seen as uh, abominations uh, by God and you can't recast them in the modern uh, language of love and mutual consent. And, uh, well, he goes on to make some other uh, comments, but that's enough uh, for that. Let me move on to Romans 1. Uh, Romans 1, you guys are probably more familiar with this passage uh, as it deals with homosexuality than any other. That's because most of us preachers, your pastors, if we know any of the biblical language at all, we know more Greek than we do Hebrew. Don't ask me why. Well, you could ask me why. And I would tell you that's because Hebrew's hard. It looks more like Chinese to me. 
I can do better with the phonetic look of uh, the Greek language. And uh, a lot of preachers don't preach out of the Old Testament anyway. That stuff's old, you know. I mean, Jesus said, hang all the law and the prophets. So I just preach from the New Testament primarily, you know. I mean, he did say that, right? On these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Okay. I stole that from my friend Frank Hamrick, if any of you know him. But uh, anyway, Romans 1, we're all familiar with this. The passage actually starts back in verse 18. The wrath of God, uh, and I translate uh, this verb because it's not translated in any modern English Bible uh, properly, I don't think. Uh, The wrath of God is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Okay? Generally, having your Bible is revealed, uh, a perfect passive. How do you do that? Is revealed. It, It is currently being revealed against all ungodliness. And he goes through this um, downward spiral of, uh, of uh, those who reject His truth first. And because they've rejected what might be known about God and their accountability, therefore, before their Creator, their minds become depraved and they go in this downward spiral because God gives them over to what they really want. If you want another God in your life, then you have at it. And it goes down a couple of levels that way. Yep. Again, you guys are familiar with this. Um, but let me read a couple of verses and then we'll look, look at some pro-gay interpretation. Verse 24. Let's go to uh, 24, I think. That's where I want to look. Yeah. Romans 1.24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions... For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons uh, the due penalty of their error. <laughs> Listen, pro-gay interpreters, liberal Christians, they say, hey, guess what, buddy? You're in big trouble because he doesn't use any of the Greek words for homosexuality in that uh, section. And I'm thinking, well, so what? He is never more graphic about the actual acts than acts of it than he is in this passage. Women exchanging natural function for uh, with another woman. Men exchanging natural function of a woman with another man. You you can't get much more graphic than this. Okay, uh, but a pro-gay interpretation um, is this. Paul did not realize there were those with same-sex orientation. See, you need to understand, Paul didn't have the modern concept of orientation. And so, you know, well, make a long story short, it really is not relevant to today. Uh, And uh, homosexual acts would be a violation of heterosexual sex for those who were constitutional heterosexuals, those who were born heterosexuals and have that orientation, then homosexual acts would be sin for them, they say. <laughs> Some of you are shaking your head no, like, how stupid, how can you misinterpret something this way? Um, but Paul is not, they say, condemning homosexual acts by those who are, who are so oriented or homosexual acts between consenting adults. Paul is instead condemning perversion, not inversion, as they call it. However, what's the comeback for that? The response is, that view is anachronistic. Uh, And what that means is they're taking some view of a doctrine or anything nowadays and imposing it it back on uh, the text of Scripture written almost 2,000 years ago. And that's a faulty interpretive method, actually. Uh, we're not in the position of authority to impose today's categories on Paul's motivations or purposes. Um, in fact, the text actually speaks against the foundational presupposition of this pro-gay view, constitution, constitutional gayness, I call it. When he explains that rebels become homosexuals as a result of their twisting or rejecting of God's truth. So it is to go beyond the text to say this was because of the reason of orientation that we now know about today. No. The reason was, is because they rejected God in their lives. That's how they ultimately got 
to where they are. Um, well, um, there are uh, there are other interpretations. I'm not going to go through all of these, but another one on this passage is that the text refers to idolatry, not homosexuality. And here, uh, homosexuality stems from the main sin idolatry. However, the passage mentions the language actually there, degrading passions, indecent acts, and against nature. God let them commit these acts as a judgment on their idolatry. So Paul isn't saying that the idolatry was immoral, but the gay acts were. I mean, the point here is Paul is actually specific, very, very specific. And... um, Well, I bring this one up for some of you. You may need this one day. A fourth uh, gay, uh, pro-gay interpretation is that homosexual acts, uh, Paul's referring to homosexual acts done out of lust. That's what's being condemned. Okay, it's not those who, who perform the homosexual acts out of, uh, de- you know, care and devotion for each other. But the problem with that is knowing the general promiscuous nature of homosexuality. Did y'all hear what I just said? The general promiscuous nature of homosexuals. Go look it up on the CDC website. If you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe the administration's Center for Disease Control. It's on their website. That uh, I just re- uh, looked it up to reaffirm what I'm claiming to you uh, a week or so ago. Homosexuals in America, uh, I forgot the percentage, but a lot of them have an average of 500 partners in their lifetime. That is why we respond, knowing the general promiscuous nature of homosexual, homosexuality, it is hard to see how all the, those relations with partners was done out of love and devotion if the sin being prohibited or condemned is... Only that of homosexuality out of lust and not out of love and devotion. How was it that you loved and were devoted to all these uh, partners? And also, Paul is actually arguing out of an Old Testament Mosaic law milieu, and thus he is invoking uh, Scripture when he bring, he's bringing God's moral law to bear on the New Testament uh, Christian and our world by extension. Um, let me sum up this point by the Feinbergs. Paul isn't saying that if you reject truth about God, you will inevitably commit each of the sins described in Romans 1. Surely there have been idol worshipers, worshipers who were thoroughly heterosexual. Rather, the connection is as follows. One, if you reject the truth of God, you will fall into sin, though the particular sin depends on the individual and his or her Situation. Clear enough. And two, anyone who commits any of the sins Paul lists does so ultimately because he or she has rejected God's revelation. In sum, the traditional interpretation of Romans 1 makes the following points. One, homosexual and lesbian sex result as do other sins from from rejecting God's truth. Two, same-sex sexual relations are a judgment upon those who engage in them. God gave them over. That's used three times, as you know. Three, same-sex sexual relations are contrary to the ordinances for sex and marriage revealed by God in Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, and in nature itself. And four, thus, such sexual activities are immoral and disobedient to God, i.e., they are sinful. Well, I think that's clear enough, and if you had a chance to read it, you probably would too. Just listen to me, you probably just heard a lot of blah, blah, blah. Okay, finally, oh yeah, the Feinbergs do say this, homosexual behavior is, uh, is uh, evidence of God's judgment on those who reject His revelation. Now, if you've ever listened to John MacArthur, he makes an interesting point here, do with it what you will, and whatever you think about John MacArthur, uh, I really don't care. I get a lot of good Bible exposition from him. Um, 
those of you in the know, you know James Dobson, right? Focus on the family. And you know John MacArthur. Those of you in the know would know that these two guys, it's like mixing oil and water theologically. They have never liked each other or what each other teach, right? Because James Dobson is a psychologist who always talks about, um, what's this, um, self-esteem. And MacArthur, being the biblicist, uh, interprets Scripture as totally against self-esteem in every way, shape, and form, every single drop of it. So, but here's the odd thing. James Dobson said, I was listening, I've heard this twice now on his program, when it was focused on the family, okay? You know how he plays sermons sometimes, or speakers, uh, Christian leaders plays audio for for his uh, one-hour program that day. And uh, he played uh, MacArthur's message, um, When God Abandons a Nation. That's the title of it. You can look it up on his website, gty.org. When God Abandons a Nation. And uh, James Dobson has said that that sermon of MacArthur's that he played because of the topic had more requests. He sold more audios of that one than any ever in his entire 30 or 40 or 50 years because of the topic, this homosexuality issue. Well, MacArthur's unique interpretation is that we have gone for years, we're like, I mean, I've heard this 50 times. If God doesn't judge America, He's going to owe Sodom an apology. You know, and, and you see the, the issue of that, right? That, that God's going to judge America in the future. God is going to judge America because of homosexuality. MacArthur's exposition of Romans 1 in that sermon, When God Abandons a Nation, his view is this. America had already rejected God's truth so many times that we were at the second or third level here, and that the prominence of homosexuality is God's judgment on the nation. That gives you a little bit different perspective, I think. All right. um, Let's move on. 1 Corinthians 6. Please turn there if you're looking. uh, Oh, I had a student in a class uh, Thursday night. I teach New Testament Greek. On Monday nights, a New Testament survey on Thursday night at Southern Evangelical Seminary. I had a student, and uh, he's one of these young guys, the, the skinny jean type uh, youth pastor. And, uh, and uh, I, I said something about turning your Bible. I said, or, or I see you over there, Kyle. You've got this iPad pulled up, you know, with the U version or whatever. He said, yeah, I usually tell people turn or tap. I said, I'm going to steal that phrase, turn or tap. People will think I'm in the, you know, I'm relevant now. Turn or tap to 1 Corinthians 6. Y'all are going to use that, aren't you, Jeremy? Sunday morning, next Sunday, you're going to steal it. It came from Kyle Hughes is his name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, I'm sorry, verse, uh, what verse is it? Yeah, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And Ray Comfort actually brought this up on his film again. I'm telling you, it's a pretty good little film. You may not like the way it's done, but the points he makes, the biblical points he makes are solid uh, in my estimation. He asks guys out on this college campus, he reads that verse, he says, why do you think, because he's going to talk about homosexuality, why do you think Paul starts it out out with this this, um, uh, command, don't be deceived? Why this ultimatum? Because people are, I'm sorry, don't be deceived. Because people are deceived about the topic. And I'm telling you, in the last six months, I have run into too many Christians who seem confused as if the Bible is unclear about homosexuality. Don't be deceived about it. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11 is another point all in itself. But you have in the New American Standard uh, these terms, uh, uh, malakoi and arsenokoitai, and these are um, the terms translated uh, effeminate and homosexual. Effeminate and homosexual. Um, 
pro-gay interpretation. If both terms refer to homosexuality, then Paul is being redundant. Another writer says the terms refer to uh, pederasty and uh, uh, pederasty. This is um, in the uh, Roman culture. Uh, you had oftentimes a young boy would go off to learn a trade or something with an older man, and this relationship would ensue. It was uh, ex- uh, tolerated, at least in some parts of the Roman Empire. And uh, another writer so says that it refers to that, and the passive male uh, is the call boy. The, the malakoi, translated effeminate, is the passive partner in the homosexual uh, event. And uh, the other one, arsenocorti, the homosexual, is translated in New American Standard as the active partner, uh, uh, the man who, who calls uh, the younger boy. But uh, the problem with this interpretation is the terms probably do refer to passive and active partners, but there are clues in the text to specify that... Um, I'm sorry, there are no clues in the text to specify that they refer to either that issue or male prostitution, as some of them say. Some interpret it, hey, this is male prostitution that's going on. And they bring up a lot of uh, uh, extra-biblical evidence to, to bear that out. But there's no clues in the text. Paul certainly does want believers to be different from the culture around them. Uh, but does that mean Paul is saying don't be male prostitutes, but consensual same-sex acts are okay? Is that what Paul's saying? I mean, a, a cursory reading of the text, you, you couldn't uh, get that, I don't think. Further, one John Eliot has produced a huge word study to attempt to prove that we can't be certain what Paul meant by using these two rare words. But Eliot is confusing term and concept, which I've already mentioned out of Romans 1. These words, or the other words for homosexuality that existed in the Greek language of the time, weren't used in Romans 1. But that does not mean the concept is not used there. In fact, as I've already demonstrated for you, I think, uh, the concept was extremely graphic and very clear in Romans 1. So again, the pro-homosexual interpretation here is 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 a confusing uh, term with a concept, and um, the question is is always authorial intent. How how is the biblical writer understanding the concept? What is the context? Okay, the list says these people at the end of verse ten will not inherit the kingdom of God. Can it be the case? that one who is only soft, or whatever their interpretation might be, will be kept from uh, the kingdom because of their softness. And uh, so my point is the homosexual interpretations really uh, don't work. The Scriptures, when it speaks of homosexuality, simply condemns it. And further, verse 11 is perhaps the most interesting to me when he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, right? You were cleansed by the blood of Christ. You were bought back out of the power of this sin over your life and over your destiny. You changed destinies when you repented, see, and trusted Christ as your Savior. Such were some of you. This demonstrates for me biblically that uh, people can change from this lifestyle. So this speaks against the current uh, homosexual agenda. One of their issues is we're born that way and we can't change. And uh, I have heard them use, just like an African American, a black person can't change their skin color. We can't change this. If I were an African American Christian, I would be livid at this sort of use that they would use what I was really born as to justify a sexual deviant behavior. And in fact, the homosexual agenda has gone so far as you probably know. Uh, Now, I don't know if they had anything directly uh, involved with shutting down Exodus International, but that shut down, you know, three years ago. But what they have done is shut down uh, an industry in the Northeast... Uh, of, um, uh, I don't even remember what it's called, the gay therapy. 
Christian-based uh, counselors therapy who, who walk these people out through a process uh, out of this lifestyle. They shut them down legally. Why? Because it worked. Why? Because such were some of you. See, you can change and come out of it is the bottom line. I mean, that's just my point in a nutshell. That's why I love verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were cleansed, washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Yeah. Well, eh, quotes by Al Mohler, um, John Piper. I'm going to run through these. Um, they've written a lot on the issue, both of those, uh, actually. John Piper says, uh, one last word, he has the healing of the homosexual soul as with every other soul will be the return of the glory of God to its rightful place in our affection. Eh, that's kind of out of context. You, you don't understand what he's been saying there, but it's a very good point. And uh, so, uh, let me tell you though, there are helps out there. Guys, I have these, um, these counseling books available. I've got a box this long in my church that I offer for people. There's every... Every issue out there from procrastination to child sexual abuse to adultery to living with an angry spouse to um, homosexuality. And I let people borrow these books uh, to encourage them from a Christian counseling perspective how to uh, deal with it, how to deal with people. In fact, the issue, there was just this one title, Homosexuality Speaking the Truth in Love by uh, Ed Welch. This past year... The problem has gotten so bad, they had to write four more. Four. Here's the titles of them. The Gay Dilemma and Your Church, Reaching Out to Those Who Struggle. Your child says I do. I'm sorry, your gay child says I do. You know, we might be faced with that with somebody we know in our church sooner than later. Maybe. Your child says I'm gay. Uh, can you change if you're gay? So there are resources out there. These are all published by uh, New Growth Press, uh, which was based out of Pennsylvania. It's actually uh, the printer's in Greensboro now. But New Growth Press, if you want to look at those uh, sort of helps. I usually have, uh, I, don't, I guess I took them off the slide. Uh, there are three or four websites out there that uh, help homosexuals out of this. There are not many out there. A few have been shut down. Um, but anyway... Frank Turek's um, Correct, Not Politically Correct. I, I do highly recommend that. I didn't deal with any. Sometimes I do his arguments. Frank Turek, uh, the head of Cross-Examined Ministry out of Charlotte, Apologetics Ministry, he wrote a book. You can actually, instead of purchasing the book, just buy the PDF download. It's like six bucks online. And it is a um, six-point argument from natural law. He doesn't even use a Bible verse to show that same-sex marriage hurts everyone. That's the subtitle, How Same-Sex Marriage Hurts Everyone. <clears throat> so I do recommend that as another resource. Okay, any questions or comments?